So this is 1 Peter chapter 3 and beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read it, and then Albert will come and share a message with us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Well, I do. Two words. You want to hear if you propose, will you marry me? (laughs) And two words I hope you will want to say if you're on the receiving end of the proposal. But there's another cultural phrase, uh, it ain't a thing without the ring. You've heard that, right? In our culture, what usually accompanies a proposal is a ring. And the significance of this ring is that it's a physical sign a physical sign that symbolizes the great value of the love for the person, the value of that person, the relationship, the commitment, and the promise to covenant with the person in the near future and for the rest of your life together. Now, when you're actually married, that sign, my ring, has many a time become a precious reminder of the covenant that I made with my wife, the promise made, the commitment, the relationship, the value of uh, the person I've married and the love between you and your spouse. So have that mindset. Similarly, Jesus has left us, I think, at least three really significant signs of his covenant, of his fidelity, of his love for his people, his church, the bride, his bride. In short, they are baptism, communion, and his Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit, I don't mean to reduce the Holy Spirit to a a thing, but certainly the Holy Spirit is a kind of sign and even seal. So just to really quickly on the side talk about the Holy Spirit. In regards to his Spirit, Paul writes beautifully in Ephesians 1 and explains, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, meaning in Jesus, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so baptism, communion, and the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to really now hone in on baptism. And so my prayer, as I've been preparing this week uh, to deliver this this message, uh, is that our hearts might cry out to God in faith, by faith, in response to today's scripture with words like, Lord, thank you. I'm born again. I'm spiritually born into your new family. That's our response of faith. That that would be one beautiful response of faith. But also, it's my prayer that our faith might overflow. Faith is meant to overflow into good works. 
into a real change in some manner as this. So help me treasure and live out my covenantal life in the church. That's the to-do, so to speak, as an overflow, a response to God's grace. You see, Jesus' church, we're called to continue to proclaim what Jesus came to proclaim, that his kingdom is near, and we're to continue to be salt and light, as he's called us to be, and specifically, in relation to today's idea and topic, spreading the worldview that the ultimate family is not even our own flesh and blood family, but to be a part of God's family in eternity, to be a part of Jesus's church, or as we say often here at Trinity Grace Church, his new covenantal community. And so I want to encourage specifically, if you already believe today, I want to encourage you with Peter's meaning of baptism. Again, we can't cover the whole gamut, but that specific aspect of baptism that Peter wants us to understand. I want to challenge Christians who haven't been baptized to get baptized. And I want to invite friends who haven't believed in Jesus that are here with us today, we're so happy you're here, to believe in Jesus and get baptized. So in that spirit, uh, for the rest of our time together, I want to ask, what does it look like to treasure my covenantal life in the church? Because baptism is really about covenant. It's a sign of God's covenant with us through Christ. And I want to do my best to draw out three things that I think that Peter has written about. First, to treasure Jesus. Second, to treasure Jesus' family. And third, to treasure Jesus' signs. So let's, let's dive in. So first, what does it look like to treasure my covenantal life in the church? It all starts with treasuring Jesus. It always starts with Jesus. That's where it always starts, a personal relationship with Jesus. And so what I mean by treasure Jesus, what kind of relationship with Jesus are we talking about? So let me ask it another way, a spiritual mirror question here. Do you enjoy Jesus? If someone asks you, what is your faith about? Is your knee-jerk response, I enjoy Jesus and that relationship in my life. Can you describe your Christian life as resting in God's love for you through Jesus, in your belovedness, that that's the deepest core of your identity? Do you turn to him, very practically speaking, your thoughts, your emotions, your affections, your spirit, when life is stressful? uncertain or painful, when there's anxiety, worry. Conversely, when life is going well circumstantially, do you humbly give him credit and thanks for the blessings, never letting success get to your head or to spoil your heart with arrogant self-sufficiency or smugness? Do you spend time reading scripture, unrushed and meditating on it, thinking over it through the day? Do you spend time praying and talking to God from the heart, with honesty, humility, and intimacy that even outsweets that between a husband and wife. Now, where do we see this? I want you to see this from Peter's writing, verse 18, as we pick up, for Christ also suffered once for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see it? Peter is praising. Peter is glorying again. His heart is bursting 
glorying about the excellencies of Jesus. Peter bursts with praise here. Jesus Christ suffered once, and he keeps coming back to this riff in his letter. But there's something to notice here that Peter specifically says, suffered once. How is this a praise? Because suffered once speaks to the quality, the quality of God's salvation. Here's what I mean. When I come up with a solution to a problem, a lot of problems that pop up in in your life, my life, work, at home, oftentimes the solution that I come up with lasts only until the next problem, (laughs) right? And then I have to go back to the drawing board. But the quality of Jesus' solution, he's different. His solutions are far superior. His answer is perfect. He only had to die once to solve the greatest problem humanity has ever faced and continues to face, namely, removing our guilt and shame, the guilt and shame of our sin, and making us righteous before God. So this is why Hebrews chapter 10 says, explains the same idea, for since the law has, meaning the old law, was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, they, they, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is referring to the Jewish religion specifically. We're trying to just relate to God through the Mosaic law, but this could actually even be a summary of every other attempt to reach God, every religion, even Ramadan that is about to end. It's impossible for just religious external action to save us, to give us a clear conscience. Now, On the other hand, then, Peter then speaks to the beautiful benefit of Jesus' perfect work, not only the quality, but the benefit that he might bring us to God. That's the second part, that he might bring us to God. And the quality of this being brought to God is is love. A wonderful relationship. But Peter also draws out the compassion of God for us, the the nature of being brought to God, the compassion that God has for us in Christ. And where do we see it? I think we see it in this last phrase, being put to death in the flesh. This is talking about Jesus, that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Make no mistake here. Peter is describing Jesus here. Jesus was put to death in his flesh, and made alive in his spirit. Now, this is not only talking about Jesus being crucified, but it's really the life that he was living on this earth leading up to the crucifixion. Now, let me try to prove that and convince you of that. What does Jesus' life that's being described here sound like? If you've read some of the New Testament, you might recognize that it sounds like all the other significant descriptions of the Christian life in the New Testament. One example. Paul in Romans 8, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, so there that matches Peter, that Jesus was living in the flesh, in the likeness of, he himself wasn't sinful, but the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He died in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Meaning, Jesus lived the life of dying to the flesh. That's why he called his disciples to carry their cross like him and to die to themselves. And he is the epitome, the perfect example of living truly, perfectly by the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what he calls his people to. And what I want you to appreciate in this is that he understands us. The call, the life he calls us to, he understands because he modeled it. He led the way. And by extension then, because he understands us, he knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to try to die to the flesh. And all of this to say, what a friend. Your true friends get you, right? That's Jesus. Even in this beautiful way, we are truly Christ followers, following Jesus in his footsteps of dying to the flesh and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. So treasure Jesus. This is where it all starts. Before we talk about baptism specifically, it has to always start with treasuring Jesus. Enjoy him. Enjoy all his benefits, his compassion, his grace to carry you and your faith through to the very end. Remember, we're asking the question, what does it look like to treasure my covenantal life in the church? If you're going to live your life in the church to the very end, you need the grace that comes from being united to Jesus and resting in him. So treasure him. Enjoy him. Abide in him. Spend time with him. Be connected to him. Be in union with him. But there's more to treasure. We need to next treasure Jesus' family. This should make sense because we're asking, what does it look like to treasure my covenantal life in the church? And the natural progression is of the Christian life, first a personal relationship with Jesus, and that naturally progresses to a relationship with Jesus' church, Jesus' body, Jesus' family. But life in the church, it's not like other memberships in the world. Let's say like a gym membership. You pay, you pay, you have to pay for your gym membership with your hard-earned money. And then you go and you use the services, the equipment to your pleasing. Just kind of -of matter-of-factly, you're serving yourself there. And maybe but rarely do you actually build deep community at the gym right? Covenantal life in the church is radically different. It's meant to be the life of a family. And I think Peter gives one all-important essential ingredient of family here in today's passage. And this description of covenantal church, covenantal life, flows directly from the work that Jesus has done. So what's the ingredient? Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Patience. (laughs) Do you see what I did there? (laughs) Now, where do we see this in the text? He goes to, he continues on, in which Jesus went and proclaimed, and we're going to see later this word proclaimed, it could just literally also be translated preached to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, now all of a sudden Peter, uh, he jumps to another part of 
just Christian history, church history, the history of the people of God, the days of Noah. Now, for all the tragedy and sadness and darkness of that great flood that God unleashed because the sins of humanity had piled up too high for God, for all that tragedy, Peter, inspired by the Spirit, what he wants us to overarchingly see is to understand God's great patience. It was God's great heart of patience that led up to even the flood being unleashed. Peter understands God's deep patience. And that's why he says similarly in his second letter, in chapter 3 as well of the second letter, but do not overlook this one fact. This is fact. Absolute truth, unalterable truth, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here's an important question. Why? Why, why, why is God patient? Because he wants as many people to be in his family as possible. In his second letter, Peter makes it crystal clear. God desires for all to be saved by grace through faith. And in his first letter, today's passage, we see God's same heart in the days of Noah. God preserves Noah's family. If you don't know the story of Noah, basically, the world had become so corrupt and in heart, Genesis says, and God had to deal with all that corruption, and so he punishes by sending a flood, but he saves this one family of Noah. And God preserves Noah's family, this one family who sought God, that responded to his grace, and the sad, overwhelming majority of the world during Noah's time stayed imprisoned in the trappings of the fall corrupt to the core, and doing violence before God as Genesis recounts. Again, the emphasis here, what what needs to stand out brightest is God doing what he can by his grace to save, to save a people by grace for himself, to save a family for himself, even if only there are eight, only eight willing to believe and obey It's worth it for God. That's how patient he is. That's how loving he is. And this is what we mean by a covenantal family. We're part of God's covenantal family. We live with God on account of God's fidelity, God's commitment, God's character, God's commitment to his people and promises to us. And then, by extension, we live together. We live together by being patient with one another as God is patient with us through Christ and strengthening one another to persevere in trusting and obeying God's promises, especially his gospel promise of grace through Jesus. That's the point of our new communities, for example. If you're not hitting that mark, then something's off. The point of our gathering should be encouraging one another, hey, How are you doing in in following Jesus? Are are you still enjoying Jesus? Are you still trusting his grace to you? Let's keep 
encouraging one another to keep trusting and obeying his promises, especially his gospel promise. Now, this curious phrase in which Jesus went and proclaimed, preached to the spirits in prison, I think, and I believe, this is Peter, he's just expanding on the idea of of God's family. This verse does not need to be confusing. Remember, the second most important rule of Scripture reading, uh, the first being depending on the Holy Spirit, just having that attitude, that prayerful attitude in your heart, Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of my heart to see wonderful things about Jesus in Scripture. That's the first most important rule of Scripture reading, or wisdom if you want. The second most important is context, 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 always. So what's the context here? This reference to Jesus preaching and proclaiming to the spirits in prison, the context is the days of Noah. If you just read it as straightforwardly as possible, Peter is saying during the days of Noah that Jesus went and preached to those who were in prison. Now, Peter here, he is not, uh, metaphor is not beyond him. And so certainly those who are in prison here, a very simple way to understand is that those who are still caught in the trappings of the fall, those who are still slaves to sin, trapped by their sin. And so we see Jesus here, and this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't worry us, trouble us, because ever since the fall, ever since the fall, beginning with the promise of the seed of Eve, crushing the serpent's head, God has been preaching and proclaiming his gospel through all the ages. And so here too, the spirit of Jesus did indeed proclaim and preach the gospel through Noah. Just imagine yourself there. And Noah's saying, we need the ark of God's grace to be saved because the truth is we deserve to face God's wrath and die for our sins And imagine Noah answering all his family and friends and passerby questions. Why are you building this ark? Because God loves us so much that he wants to save us by his grace, meaning we wouldn't know to be saved if it weren't for God's grace telling us and warning us that there's a judgment coming and providing a way for us to be saved. That's the gospel. And God was preaching the gospel through Noah, even through that concrete, symbolic lesson of the ark. And he was just proclaiming to all the people that would stop and consider what's going on here and whether to believe or not. All of this to say, we're called to treasure, to fight for, to encourage and build up God's covenant family, his church. The whole point of this is that God was patient if it meant even just saving eight. But he wants really as hard as to save the whole world. And so we're to be patient with one another as we keep pointing each other to Jesus' gospel, just like in the days of Noah. Well, finally, I think Peter now is calling us, the way I'll word it is, to treasure Jesus' signs. Jesus' signs. 
And so here we come back to my introduction, the whole notion of, of a wedding ring, for example, being a sign, a symbol of a deeper thing, the marriage, the actual marriage and the commitment and the covenant. And Jesus leaves us covenantal signs to his church. And these signs are so important to show us how to enter God's family and to continue to be a part of his family. Baptism especially shows us how to enter, but also even how to continue to live out this life in the church by faith. Now, where do we see this? Let's continue on in the text and moving along. Verse 21, baptism then, which corresponds to this. What's this? It's the flood. Noah being saved through the flood, through the ark. And so there's a clear as day lesson here. Baptism is a sign, something that corresponds. Isn't that what a sign does? It it corresponds to something. If you're driving, literally, a a speed limit sign, it corresponds to the law and what, you know, speed that you're supposed to be driving on, uh, driving at. And so the sign here of baptism, it corresponds to Noah passing through the flooding waters safely and to being saved. And he was flooded with water, not just sprinkled, not just immersed in a river or lake, but a flood that took over the whole earth. Now Peter is teaching us that the essence of baptism is the same essence of Noah's family being saved through the flood. And so similarly, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 10, let me just, uh, so here's an image of artist rendition of Noah passing through the flood. And then even in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explains that the Israelites, they were baptized as they crossed through the Red Sea, the, the picture on the right. And what Peter wants us to understand is that the essence, the essence of baptism, what goes on in a baptism is the same essence, it's the same thing going on in Noah being saved, his family being saved through the flood. So I want to, I want you to, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but we're called as Christians to live a lifestyle of baptism, so to speak. Baptism, at least for myself, as, even as I was preparing this message, I realized for a long time, most of my life, I just thought of baptism as that one moment in the past. But it's actually a whole lifestyle. It's a whole way of living out our faith. And so that's why uh, Peter says here, let me find the right slide here. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can Peter say that baptism saves us? Is he saying we're saved by an external religious good work and ritual? By no means. By no means. Okay? What we do need to appreciate, however, is that Peter uses baptism as a synonym for salvation. He literally says, baptism now saves you. So what does he mean? I think what Peter means 
And we have to think about this carefully and, and precisely. The key to understanding Peter's teaching is what he says, he follows up with uh, an appeal for a good conscience. Where is this here? An appeal for a good conscience before God. Meaning, this means asking God, an appeal. You're asking God. You're asking God for help. You're asking him for help to be cleansed. Cleansed of guilt and shame for a good conscience. And this really, you could just describe this as asking God for help by faith. You're you're demonstrating your faith. I need your help, God. So you see, when Peter speaks of baptism, as he continues on, he intentionally makes external baptism secondary. That's why he says here later, uh, sorry, wrong slide here. Now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. See, Peter makes it clear. Look, the external ritual, that's secondary. What he goes for is the heart. That's what he wants. The heart. He is speaking of a baptism of the heart, the mind, the soul. Baptism of the heart, then, is salvation. If your heart gets baptized, if your heart understands, I need God to save me. I can't do it on my own. And it's like my life is passing through this entire flood, and the only way I'll make it through is if God brings me through by his grace. Meaning your heart has genuinely been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, in in his baptism, in Jesus' baptism. And this is why Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism isn't baptism if you don't rise, right? Right? Literally, when you're being physically baptized, if you're being immersed and you're just kept there, call 911, right? If you're being sprinkled and you continue to be sprinkled the rest of your life, that that becomes slow, dripping water torture, so to speak. Your baptism is only baptism if you not only die with Christ or immerse, but you rise. And you rise to new life and being raised with Christ to new life. You've passed through the flood waters of sin and death, and you've been saved by the ark of Jesus and his grace. So when a Christian is baptized physically, externally, even your external baptism is, it only has meaning if it's united to even literally Jesus' physical baptism. It's only Jesus' baptism. He was literally baptized by water, physically, that our physical baptism has any meaning as well. But the more important point being, we go beyond that and see the spiritual nature of it. And so we need to be baptized in the heart. This is what Peter means, that baptism now saves you. Because if it's a genuine baptism, it means you've clung to God. You've said, I need your grace. I need your help to pass through. And when that's going on in the heart, when you've come to faith, then your physical baptism is a natural next step to symbolize that, to picture that. 
And so we shouldn't throw out physical baptism at all because, A, just simply put, Jesus commands it. And this is a part of his new covenant of grace. Now, what's important here then, and just the truest meaning of baptism, is that you and I are united to Christ and his baptism. His death and being raised with him. And so the point of baptism, maybe there are some friends here, you're a Christian, and you're, you haven't been baptized yet. Maybe you're, you're thinking, I have to be at a certain level of maturity or holiness or godliness before I get baptized. Then you're missing the whole point of baptism. Because that makes baptism more about you and your work. If you really understand that our baptism has any meaning at all, only as much as it's united to Jesus' baptism, then you understand that baptism is all about Jesus. That's why where we started, treasure Jesus. Because your baptism is all about God's fidelity, God's commitment to you, you being united to Jesus, who's an ark, so to speak, who can actually save you. And so when you think of your baptism, I hope what what stirs up and the praise that wants to come out from your heart is, God, thank you for that day when you opened up the eyes of my heart to show me that I need you. I can't do it without you. In all of this, in the context of just building up the body of Christ. And so that's why Paul says elsewhere, just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so there it is. Both coming together. First, baptism of the heart, meaning we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. It's our heart that has been baptized and we're all baptized. What's the point? What's, the, what's God's goal in all this? It's that we enter his family. So we become a part of his family. Why do we need the encouragement of the sign of baptism? I think one answer then lies in the last part of today's passage. Notice how Peter ends. He's thinking, reflecting, just praising God. Baptism is wonderful. And why? Because verse 22, who, Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Jesus has gone into heaven. He's gone ahead of us. And so Peter says elsewhere in the second letter, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus has gone into heaven to wait for the right time to bring in this new heavens and new earth, his new creation. And ours then is a long journey home. And so think of any long road trip. You need good signs so you don't get lost. And think of a loving marriage that makes it to the end. It usually has this precious sign of the rings that is symbolic of that heart and love and just working at the marriage for a lifelong time between the husband and wife. It's an important sign. 
And so similarly, baptism, it's a beautiful sign of the sheer grace that we have been saved by. And the sheer grace that will lead us home. Bottom line, baptism is God's precious and chosen sign that you have entered into his covenant family, the church. Meaning, we're uniting ourselves to Jesus in his death, that's being immersed, and his resurrection, being raised, and following in his footsteps of dying to the flesh and living in the spirit, and again, living in this lifestyle of baptism, just continually dying to the flesh and living in the spirit. It's a lifestyle of baptism. We all started in the covenant community of works with Adam and Eve, but now we have entered the new covenant uh, community through baptism. And we long to be found as Jesus' elect at home with him in the very end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We're spiritually born new into your family, your new family, the one family that will last forever into the new heavens and new earth. So help us to treasure. Help us to treasure if we've been baptized. What's the whole meaning of that? And that it wasn't just a moment in time, but truly living a lifestyle of baptism, to die to our flesh and to be raised to life as we're united to Jesus and his death and resurrection. Help us, therefore, to just love the church and to see it so worth it to keep building up our efforts to stay connected to the church, to build up the church, to be patient with one another, to love each other as, as you have been patient with us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.